And I worked too damn hard to get to where I was at. And who are, you know, you to say that I'll never come back, right? You know, well, I just made a, basically made a promise to myself that I said, I don't care how long it takes, the pain I go through, I'm going to get back on the bike, I'm going to race again, and I'm going to come back even stronger than I did before all this craziness happened. And that's what I did. That's Leah Goldstein, world champion bantamweight kickboxer and 2021 Race Across America winner on this episode of Silver is the New Gold. I'm Karen Lonso, and this is Silver is the New Gold, a podcast that shares stories and insights about women's participation in sports after 35. A quick note about this episode, my audio quality in the interview part is not as good as it's been in the past couple of episodes because one of my mics failed. But I am still able to bring you my interview with Leah Goldstein, so if that's important. And lesson here, of course, is redundancy matters and always have backups. Leah Goldstein knows no limits. From the age of nine, she was working towards her black belt in Taekwondo. In 1987, at the age of 17, she was the world champion in women's bantamweight kickboxing. And at the age of 52, she was the overall winner of the Race Across America, a 4,800-kilometer cycling road race that tests not only her physical endurance, but your mental endurance past your max to the near breaking point. And she's not stopping there. She has a book called No Limits, which is available at Amazon or from her website. And she is also releasing her documentary, No Limits, the story of Leah Goldstein in the very near future. As someone who wrestles with confidence and mental strength at times, I look at Leah as another strong role model for women of any age, and I'm so thrilled that she agreed to come on the podcast to talk about her journey through sports and how mental strength helped her succeed. Here she is to share her story. Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for coming on the show to, to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me. We already did a little bit of an intro around, which again, I wish I had recorded, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Um, so I first heard of you uh, on CBC's As It Happens. They were interviewing you after your race across America. Mm-hmm. And that's so for those who don't know, that is a 4,800 kilometer race from the West Coast of the U.S. to the East Coast. And it's a mixed race. So you're racing against both men and women, correct? You're racing against men and women, but there is different categories, right? So Right, right. So, yeah. so when you get to the end, they will divide you based on overall winners and then aging gender category. Correct. Yeah. Just like any other race. Yeah. 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 And you were 52 at the time that you did that. And, uh, yeah. And you finished first by, by quite a margin, right? Like 17 hours or so. Yes. Correct. I finished the first by Well, actually this year in race across America, only three, three of us finished in the solo division because of the extreme temperatures. So it was a race of survival this year. I mean, even the teams, a lot of teams pulled out because of the temperatures, right? It was just extreme heat. I mean, the hottest it got in Borrego Springs or the desert there in Arizona was around 52 Celsius. So just try standing in that, let alone riding in that, you know? So it was, yeah, it was, it was in, and it was intense, not through the first two states of California and Arizona, that heat came right across the country with us, right? I mean, even in Kansas, it, the heat was so intense that I burned right through my Jersey, right? I mean, that was the extent oh, wow. of it. Yeah. Wow. So. so, and you're, you're lucky you didn't, you didn't get heat stroke or sunstroke or did you, did you actually experience any of that or? Well, not, I mean, no, I mean, I, you, you're, you have a, I had a crew of nine people, like all racers have crew. So, I mean, I, to get through the hottest part, I was wearing like an ice sock full of ice around my neck. And then every five kilometers, one of my crew members had a bottle of water that I, I could douse myself. I mean, even the cockpit of the bike, it was so hot that I couldn't touch the handlebars or place my elbows on the aero pads. So I'd have to water it down. I mean, that was the intensity of the heat. And one of the racers from Denmark, his like GPS Garmin on his bike started to melt. That was oh, how hot it was. Right? It was insane. Is there any talk of future races of moving it to a different time of year? 
that was that took place in what June or May? I mean, that is yeah. Hot well, I mean, like... yeah. No, I don't think they would because I mean that's the long because because Race Cross America is um, the like the time limit is twelve days, right? So it's not okay. like you can just tootle across. So in a you know forty eight hour period, you're sleeping between zero to three hours, right? So I guess they want to do it where there's the most light in the day and June oh, is the sense. best time. And sure. I don't know when they could do it because the summertime would be more excruciating than, you know, so yeah. And I think they've moved it before, but I think just getting the permits to, you know, to, um, to run that kind of race is quite the process. So I think they're just going to stick to the plan and it's been there for 40 years now. So I don't think they're going to change it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's true. There's a lot of logistics involved in that besides just yeah, setting, yeah, <laughs> setting exactly. some dates and having people. Yeah. But even up. like, I mean, there was a heat wave right across the country. I mean, I live in Vernon, British Columbia, and then even here it was 47 Celsius, right. During that heat dome. So I just think, you know, even with climate change and stuff that, you know, like that, I, I think it's going to be more of the norm, these extreme temperatures, so I don't think where you move, but you're still going to hit, be hit with something. So I think they're just going to stay put. Yeah, that's crazy. But I do remember you in that that uh, episode talking about um, not only physically, and now we have the heat factor in there, but just how mentally mentally exhausting it was. And um, yeah, and that's, that's sort of what I really want to talk to you about through your entire athletic career from kickboxing, even to your professional career, and then into cycling is this this mental strength that you have that I think is unparalleled <laughs> really. Um, and I think at the best of times, you know, we're, we're all victims of our, of our thoughts and emotions. Um, and yeah, so I'm really interested in your story about mental toughness and mental strength and how you built it and, and kind of where it comes from. And, uh, and so at the, the beginning, um, you began your competitive athletic career, uh, in Taekwondo and then as a kickboxer, Lethal right. Leia, I think W5 right. called you at, at one point right. <laughs> because you were a phenom, a 17 year old bantamweight kickboxer. You, you won the world championship, but how, how did you, how did you get into, to martial arts? Uh, where did that start for you? Well, that start, I mean, that wasn't planned. I I was bullied um, in elementary school, right? You know, I mean, I had some challenges. You know, my, my mom was born in China, father in the Soviet Union, so their English wasn't very good. My English wasn't good. I spoke with the lisp, and I had a little bit of a uh, learning disability, so I was put in a special class. Then on the physical side, my right leg was growing at a faster rate than my left leg. It's longer, it's stronger, the foot is bigger. And I can't, um, I have very little mobility where the ankle is. So I, I walked with the limp. So when you're different in school, kids can be cruel, right? Mm -hmm. So I was chased every lunch hour between 12 and 12.45, you know, bullied me and my best friend, Matthew. And I couldn't tell my parents because my father really implemented to my sister. And I know you can't always run to people when you have issues. You got to figure things out for yourself. Mm -hmm. And also back then, couldn't tell teachers because, you know, they often taught yeah. us not to tattletale, right? You know, you yeah. figure things out for yourself. No one likes so, a rat. <laughs> but exactly. So yeah. I came home one day and I got an hour of TV and I opened the television looking for Gilligan's Island. And I saw a young Asian man fighting 5, 10, 15 people. And it was Bruce Lee. And I thought, damn, he can fight off 30 people. I only have to fight off eight. I got to learn whatever he's doing. So obviously, you know, Bruce Lee was doing Kung Fu. And so I found a Taekwondo studio and then that's how it all started. <laughs> At nine years old, I started Taekwondo. Wow. I, ha I have to admit that in the 90s, because I'm a little bit, you're my brother's age, I'm a little bit behind you. But man, right. I was like blood sport and kickboxing were yeah. like... <laughs> Yeah. I, I was like, Jean-Claude Van Damme is so amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Who sure. can do the splits like that? Come on. Yeah, I know, Two right? chairs, you're like hanging in the middle. Well, exactly. Like... <laughs> exactly. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Now, ouch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I measure the distance sometimes. It's not good. It's not improving. Yeah. The splits are not going to be, you know, for me, for sure. Yeah. Um. So, so you got into martial arts because you were being bullying, being mm -hmm. bullied. And then as a young adult, you moved into military and policing. Were mm -hmm. you, were you driven by a, a sense of, of fairness and protectionism to, to take on the, like to, to take on that sport and to go into that, um, 
And, you know, was that kind of a reaction to being bullied or, or, um, you know, was there another thing that drove you into, because both of those are, I mean, martial arts is defensive or offensive. And of course, military right. is keeping the, the peace or, you know, defending against harm, I guess, for the lack right. of a better word. So what, what do you think drove you into, to, to those initially? Well, I mean, besides the bullying, I think like, you know, um, the Taekwondo kickboxing, whatnot, you know, you think of it as a violent sport, but actually I was already physically fit. It wasn't that, that really improved. It was the mental strength, right? You know, Mm -hmm. when when you're more confident, like me being confident, now being able to defend myself, confident people, they stand different, they react different, they talk different, their energy is different. That was enough to stop the situation at school. I never got into a fight. I was just, you know, brave enough to stand up to whoever was being bullied, right? You know, was bullying me. And I think that's what changed. And same in the kickboxing too. It was what was going on upstairs. Because with most things we do, it's not so much the physical, it's the mental part that drives us, right? That's where the performance comes from, you know? And same with ultra-endurance cycling. It's not physical. It's 80% mental. The rest is physical. But I think one thing just led to another. Because when we talk about like the IDF, the Israel Defense Force and the and the police academy, which later became the Belouche, which is a spying agency. I knew what I wanted to do when I was seven years old. And I knew that's where I was going to end up since I was young as I could remember. I didn't tell anyone because it was a secret, right? James Bond doesn't talk, you know? <laughs> yeah. twice the so that just kind of, that just kind of happened on route. Like the kickboxing happened because I was a second degree black belt junior gem, uh, junior national champion at 12. And that's the age that boys and girls fight together. And I didn't mm-hmm. feel challenged anymore after that. So a black belt basically suggested I try kickboxing. And that's how I led into, you know, into my career as a kickboxing is going into a studio and the coach there seeing talent and basically said to me, you know, at 17 years old, if you follow my rules, which was no smoking, no drinking, no drugs, no friends, no swear, train seven days a week, train twice a day. And he says, 17, you world champion. And that's what I did at 13 years old. I didn't have that teenage life of friends and parties and whatnot. You know, I trained not seven days a week, twice a day. I trained seven days a week, three times a day. And I just lasered in. And at 17 years old, I was the undefeated champion of the world. And so, which is incredible. And then how, how did you prepare yourself to do that? Um, I'm curious to know at 17 uh, or 15 or 16, there's so many external forces about being um, being included at school and like that whole like high school navigating the social politics. Um, how did you train yourself or, or what did you need to do to tell yourself like, this is the path I'm gonna take and I'm not gonna be able to do these other things that other teenagers are doing. And it's going to be weird right. <laughs> and people aren't going to understand it. Did you, did that uh, factor in at all? Or were you just by nature able to be like, this is what I want to do. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. Well, I mean, of course, there's a lot of sacrifice when you're, you know, especially when you're young, you're giving up a mm-hmm. lot of the things that kids love to do. But on one hand, I wasn't a super social butterfly. You know what I mean? I didn't feel comfortable around large crowds or large groups, you know? So I was a bit of a loner. So the sport kind of suited me, right? But I Mm -hmm. also saw, you know, the sacrifice of training really hard and just lasering into what I had to, you know, to do. It was bringing me success, right? I mean, I was a a provincial champion. I was a national, two-time national champion. I was the North American champion. And that stemmed from training really hard. And putting all the fun stuff aside for now, because, you know, good times and friends, they're always going to be around. It's not going anywhere. Right. But unique and special opportunities won't. And I knew that, you know, even at a young age, that this is my time. And if I don't do it, I'll regret it. It's a one time deal sometimes, especially at that age, doing that sport. And that's what drove me. It was seeing the success of hard work. And that basically led me on to the rest of my life. Those principles of whatever you're doing is 110%. And there's there's no leeway out. You know what I mean? You follow that one path and that's the path to succeed. That's that's incredible at, at 17. Because I think a lot of us, even as adults, still fight against the, the what is right for us and what we want to do versus what we feel like we're expected to do. 
Well, that's the problem. I think we want like validation a lot of times coming from the outside, right? You know what yeah. I mean? When, yeah. when you tell someone you want to do something and go, oh, it'll never happen. You can't do that. And they give you all these reasons why you can't. And then, you, you know, and we tend to believe it. I didn't care what other people thought. You know, there's a saying that it's none of your business what other people think of you, right? You know, it didn't matter, especially, you know, when people said that I could never do something. I actually used that as as fuel, right? I loved it when people said it because, you know, the best revenge you can you can give it or, 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 you know, is fire back is when you do succeed, right? When somebody doesn't want you yeah. to fail or you think that you can't, right? Um, and I proved that multiple times, especially in my pro cycling career. I mean, Jesus, it took me eight years to finally get to that level of racing that I wanted to get to, right? You know, some things came more harder than others, but I was one that to me, quitting is never an option unless of course it's life threatening, you know, because yes. patterns are often repeated. Once you throw in that white towel, it's too easy to keep doing that, right? You know, and I think too, it's another saying that I have is you, sometimes you have to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's mm-hmm. the process of succeeding and also not being afraid to fail, right? Because many people who have succeeded in a multitude of things have failed many, many times, right? We just don't hear that side. We only hear the good side, right? You know, but yeah, that's yeah. the one thing is that I'm not afraid to fail of the things that I'm trying to do. I'll just get my ass back up and I'll just keep moving forward till I finally get it, right? you know? So you, you said that you had a physical disability. You had a limp. Um mm-hmm. Out of curiosity, did that give you actually any advantages when you were learning kickboxing? Were you actually stronger on that, you know, like, or or how did you work through that? Well, it's not only that my limp is that the mobility on my ankles, like I can't point my toes, right? Like, you know what I mean? How the foot goes. So it's kind of, I have very little mobility. So, I mean, it was a struggle. And also because of the difference in strength, I had incredible pain when I was a kid up until I was 13 years mm. old, right? And I did see a specialist, um, you know, just to kind of to monitor how things were going. I don't necessarily think it was an advantage. I just knew that I had to work twice as hard, right? You know what I mean? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Just to, to equalize both sides. So, and and I do, and my left leg is more um, more dominant than my right leg. For sure, it's stronger, yet I'm right-sided, right? So, I mean, it might've been to an advantage, you know what I mean? But it was, yeah, I mean, when you have something like that, you do have a disability and you might have to work twice as hard, but it doesn't mean that you can't do the things that you love. You just figure out a way and you make that work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess then you already answered this question, you know, like how you were able to let the bullying go just by, just by winning. Um, but did the kids actually change their attitudes towards you? Um, when you started to do better, did it, or? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was, yeah. I mean, when they heard of what I was doing and that I was a Canadian national champion, I mean, that, and it's just hearing that, right? I mean, it stopped yeah. the bullying. But I think the biggest thing was, is that, I mean, I hated going to school because of that, because I was picked on, right? You know, um, but as I said, when you're, there's something about knowing, you know, knowing, being able to defend yourselves, it gives you this inner strength, right? And when you're not mm-hmm. afraid of something, then you approach things differently, right? And again, in my case, it was me standing up to those bullies, like that boy that chased me for like all of grade two and most of grade three. I finally said to Matthew, who, you know, we, we started going, we're not running anymore. That's, I was done. And I, you know, and then that, 12 o'clock, the, the bell rings and, and he's coming with his group. And I just stood there, Matthew, he takes off my best friend, you know? And then I said to him, I go, and his name was Jason. I go, Jason, you want to fight? Today's the day you want to fight a girl. I'm going to kick your ass and I'm going to embarrass you. Right. And that was enough for him to stop. He just, he just walked away because that's what they want. Like bullies are looking for that submissive person. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like that the the dog with its tail between its legs right um and then i just said i'm never running again that's never going to happen because that feeling of being afraid and you know what i mean was horrible i hated it right i would make excuses not to go to school like i wasn't feeling good or i just wouldn't just play hooky or whatnot right but you can't do that forever you can't hide so that i promised myself i'd never put myself in that situation again because i remember it today as i did you know when i was nine ten years old and so, so were you prepared for the level of fight you were going to have when you finally pursued your dream to become a spy for, for what you were going to run into from your colleagues and from the people you had to deal with? Um, 
from from your you know what you learned in in kickboxing and from you know school and or or did you have to continue to build your mental strength from that um because i would imagine that you know just constant internal fighting with the people you have to work with because it's very chauvinist in you know military and policing and yeah the you know i'm sure the criminal world is also yeah, <laughs> very yeah. violent and yeah. scary I mean, yeah i mean i think it's um it's different right that's kind of how life is life is a fight right you know mm-hmm. women have it a little bit more challenging say than men you know um and and back in in my you know when i was in the in the police force i mean we didn't have a support system for women but mind you too i was also in a department that no women were recruited and right. i had to fight to get into a course that was open up only to certain members of you know the security um, population, whatever of Israel that wasn't even open to women. And so I kind of prepared myself and I knew what I was getting into. And even when the police commissioner, Yaakov Turner, you know, he gave, he gave, um, me special permission, let's just say, or a special pass to allow me in. But he basically said to me, to me, you know, be prepared because they're going to rip you apart. Right. More so, you know, and don't forget too, like, you know, for example, I'm in a group of like, you know, 150 other men that we're being tested and treated um, and um, trained, sorry. And, you know, if I have a bad day, then the excuse is, well, I'm a woman. That's why I have a bad day. But if one of my, you know, comrades, whatever has a bad day, it's because he just had a bad day. Right. So I always had to be one above. Right. And I couldn't afford to have a bad day. That's the first thing they would latch on to. And I knew that. But I Mm -hmm. came into that prepared kind of mentally and I knew what I was getting into. But I was that confident that I had the ability to do anything they wanted me to do. So that's how, you know, mentally strong I was. But again, you have to prepare for it because that's life. And it doesn't doesn't end. Right. It's always going to be like that. Life is always a fight. Yes. Yes, it does get exhausting, though, at times, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I agree. I agree. You know, uh, yeah. It's funny because I have had this complaint where um, sometimes when when you're fencing men and you're doing better than them in fencing, mm-hmm. in fencing, you can beat someone's blade. It's part of the game. Right. But there are people who will, like, hit so hard that, it, like, your hand goes, like, onto the next piece. Right. Because they don't know what else to do. And right. I've been frustrated with that. And sometimes I think like, am I just complaining? Cause it hurts. <laughs> like, Cause I'm a French, I'm a French handle. So I don't have a lot of strength in my grip. It means that my, you know, I hold it at the end and I sacrifice strength for length basically. But I was at um, a training camp and I was listening to a conversation and this young woman said the same thing. She's like, I was winning. I was like, some of my best skill that I've done all, all day or whatever. And all I did was get mad and like beat the crap out of me. And like, what am I going to do with that? So it's, it just, you know, um, there's just, it's just kind of like always that fight. Like if, yeah, you know, like if I can't beat you in skill, I'm just going to resort to what I have, which will always beat you, which is sheer strength. Right. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, how, but was there anything in particular that you did to help prepare yourself mentally to, to take on that fight and to just, I mean, I think the mental buildup started, I mean, as soon as I went into the military, the mental strength happened right there more, not so much in the IDF and the Israel defense force. It was more when I transitioned into the police force that, um, you know, people in power abusing authority, which was very rampant back then and women getting it a lot tougher than men, you know, so I had to kind of position myself um, in a way that, you know, people thought I was kind of psycho, right? Because I didn't let people take advantage of me, even though they've tried, right, you know, or talk mm-hmm. to me in appropriate ways or, or try to do things, you know, inappropriate. Um, so I handled things the same way that a man, that's how, the same way that a man would have handled it is the same way that I did, right? You know, and sometimes right. aggression, that's that it speaks the language, right? You know, sure. so I learned on route, you know, that's what it takes. Because again, like my father said, you, you can't always run to somebody when you have issues. And I had no one to run to. So mm-hmm. if I wanted to continue in this path that I had to figure it out, right? You know, 
So I had to change who I was, become this harsh, aggressive person where I was considered a bitch. Although if I was a man, I'd be considered a tough dude or whatever. But that's the game I had to play in order to survive that, right? And But that's the line of work that I chose. So, you know, we have to think about what we're doing and Mm -hmm. the obstacles that we're going to face and how we're going to handle that, right? Of course, I was very young. I didn't expect it to the magnitude that it happened, but I dealt with it, you know, in order to stay into that my positions that I wanted, I had to do those certain drastic moves, right? Because otherwise I would have been eaten alive. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, sometimes women have it a lot tougher than men, especially when you're doing something that's primarily, you know, a male role or or that women don't really do. That's kind of fringe, right? You know, so I went through that experience, especially, you know, through my 20s and 30s. Did you learn how to compartmentalize? Like, were you where you were uh, like a certain way or be, behaved or act a certain way when you were at work, but then you were able to turn it off when you were on your, on your spare time. Um, it's funny did, because did you kind of like, or like, you know, like how did you not lose yeah. your, yourself in that well, requirement yeah. to be more like a man to well, uh, survive? Yeah. Well, you put this, you know, persona, whatever, when you go to work as this tough, whatever woman and this and that, and, and then you're so frustrated that for me, I would just take it out on the punching bag because I was a kickboxer or I'd take it out on the bike, right? You know what I mean, mm-hmm. I'd go for a ride or, or a run or whatnot, right? Because it was frustrating for sure. I mean, what I had to do is also was very isolating, you know, um, and I didn't talk much about some of the treatment that I was put through and I was, oh, they treated me horribly through the police, you know, in, in this one station where I was positioned in, in Hadera. Right. You know, it was a terrible experience. Right. But there is one principle that I always followed that although, you know, my situation wasn't great, you know, I always worked my butt off. I never came late, never left early, never cut corners. You know, um, I always did what I had to do 110 percent. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. that and that's something that actually can help because I ended up getting transferred from three months in police work into a spying agency that normally takes three to four years to even be considered. And there I was the first woman actually to be recruited because they were watching me to see how I would handle certain situations. And Mm -hmm. I didn't crack and I didn't crumble. Right. Cause I knew this was coming, you know, so mentally I was prepared for it. And so you began cycling. Uh huh. Uh, as part of, well, when you were working in the police agency and in the military, um, and you, you did really well, you, you won, you know, competitions when you were in Israel and then you came back to Canada and you began your pro cycling career. Right. And Mm -hmm. then you were very much at the bottom. So yeah. how hard, when I got into, when I got into fencing and I was like, I am so good at sports. And I got into fencing and I got crushed by 14 year olds yeah. <laughs> regularly. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, how hard was it to, to, to come here after all your success from when you were a teenager to, you know, even as an adult in Israel and yeah. come here and basically be at the bottom, um, how how hard was it to to accept that and then you know redefine redefine your goals and and decide where you wanted to go with it uh, that's a good point i mean up until that point, I had excelled in everything, right? You know, in the Taekwondo and the kickboxing, the police and the military. And then the bike I was introduced during the military by one of the lieutenants there who was a commander for the, um, sorry, a lieutenant for the commander. He was um, the national champion of sport of triathlon. So he's the one who introduced me to the bike. So then I started, and there was no pro women cycling, racing, whatever, in that time in Israel. There was duathlons, which is a run, bike, run. So then I started competing in duathlons and I was a national champion within a year and it was because of the bike leg. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I thought I was really good at cycling, but Israel is a teeny itty bitty country. So I didn't have a lot of competition. (laughs) I was a big fish in a very small pond. You know, when I came to North America, I was a shrimp in an ocean, you know, so it was different. I go, Oh my God, I'm not that good. (laughs) 
right? <laughs> I love the sport, but I'm really not that good. So that was a hard transition. I mean, again, like I said, I had excelled and I thought that, you know, pattern of success was going to kind of, con- you know, um, continue when I, when I transitioned into pro racing, right? Of course, because you've never known anything thing. different. You've never well, known exactly. anything other I mean, than I just, I'm awesome. I just my, my job in Israel, whatever, <laughs> you know, I was working for a spying agency to pursue the cycling career, which people thought I was insane. I was in my early thirties, you know, the Canadian Federation said, what are you insane? You know, they said I was, for one, I was too old. I was too small for sprinting, too big for climbing. I had basically missed the boat, right? You know? And so it was up to me kind of to prove to this sport, you know, that, hey, I can still do this. And it took like eight years (laughs) before I even got recognized, right? 38. (laughs) So how, how did you... How did you start back into it then? How you, you came here and and you're like, I'm at I'm at the bottom. Yeah. I I need a, a plan. Uh how did you and, and you know, you just said Canadian cycling said you're you're too old, you're all of these things. Yeah. How did you how did you get a coach? How did you develop a training plan? How did you know? Well, I mean it was it was a struggle. I had a lot to prove. The Canadian the Canadian Cycling Federation still took me as a development rider to Europe, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, because they saw. I mean, I think the coaches saw more potential. There were some people in there that were, you know, kind of against me going. So it was kind of a struggle there. Um, I, I'm not. I can't give you the the reasons why. Um, sure. But I mean. Honestly, what changed for me, I raced for a pro US team, right? I was more of a domestic, like a support rider. Mm-hmm. And and when I was 37, I was at a big race in um, in California. And the biggest US team, they were having a discussion, you know, because cycling is very strategic. And the coach there, or the director of the team, was talking about a cyclist, right? And I kind of overheard it. I was in the back and I was signing registration or whatnot. And then he said something to the effect, when the road goes up, she drops down. And those five words that I'll never forget, you know, to the day I die is Goldstein. That's my last name. Can't climb worth shit. And everyone starts laughing, not just him, not just his riders, but other coaches, other, you know, the spectators. It was the most humiliating thing I've ever felt in my life. Right. You know, and I think that transition for me, I said, you know what, I'm going to show you how shitty I really am. Right. You know, <laughs> and so that's where I do where I prove like, you know, in the sport of pro racing is where I prove that you don't need a gift in anything you choose to do in order to excel, because there's a gift we all have. And it's called the gift of work. And that's mm-hmm. what I do. That following season, I moved from Vancouver to Vernon because it's a little bit more hilly hill here. Hired a climbing coach, dropped 10 pounds. I came back the following season, not only winning hilly races, but setting new records. And I was finally on top of the world. And that's exactly what transitioned, what was going on upstairs and me getting mad enough to say, this is crap. I'm not going to take this anymore. And being humiliated on top of that didn't yeah, help. Yeah. Well. So I think that was <laughs> a combination because I mean, whatever I was doing wasn't working yet. I didn't want to give up because I had never given up anything in my life. So that's I'm a world championship kickboxer. Damn you. So that, yeah, that's, that's basically what happened is, you know, um, me saying to myself, that's it. It's either now or never, because I wasn't getting any younger. I was almost 40 years old at this time. Yeah. Did you go to Europe to, to train at all? Did you, or did you mostly do your training here? Yeah. Both. I mean, when I was with the development team, we trained primarily in France, right? I mean, I did the Grand Bouquel, which is the Tour de France equivalent for women. You Mm -hmm. know, I was a a support writer for Alison Sider and Sandy Espeseth, who were uh, two of the top Canadian cyclists at the time, um, tour de load. I did many races in Spain. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I was saying. Like the difference, the level of racing was night and day compared to, you know, to North America. And a lot of the national team riders, uh, development riders that would go to Europe and, you know, or to France, Spain, you know, I'm going to say 80% of them quit cycling after that because it was a real eye opener as to how difficult and competitive the sport really is. Yes, yes. And I've told this story before, but it, it's still hilarious. When my husband and I went to Switzerland, we 
rented bikes and of course they have a battery on them and I was like I am rocking this I am on like only 10% eco I got passed by a 90 year old and then I got passed by a 10 year old they're not even breaking a sweat right yeah with sandals and socks right yeah (laughs) I know they're not dressed for cycling and I'm using air quotes here they're just on like a daily like tour somewhere so we felt like oh my god how out of shape am I (laughs) well I mean cycling in Europe I mean that's like the, the hockey for us here right you know yeah when europeans are born they're born with a bike right they learn how to ride they learn how to crawl or walk right so and, yeah. and they start racing at a very young age right i mean you know there's cyclists everywhere in europe so you know yes. and most north americans we come into cycling from an injury from another sport right you know like a lot of um downhill skiers or you know runners or triathletes or whatnot right you know and we come mm-hmm. in normally a little bit later like in our you know, mid twenties or early thirties, something like that. So, but it's changing now. I think the, the sport is getting more recognized now too here in North America. And we're reaching kind of the level that's happening in Europe too, because we're having European coaches come over here and, you know, training us kind of the same levels and the same techniques that they use in Europe. So the, the playing field is starting to even out a little bit. Is it starting to get more sponsorship? Like when you were a pro, like a professional cyclist, and I'm assuming that because you were older, they, well, it's an assumption. So, but you probably didn't get funding from Canadian cycling, like the younger racers would have. So how, how were you able to support that career? Cause it well, that, been... actually, no, because like when you're with the national team, there's a kind of a, um, it's called, called carding, right? You yeah. know, when you reach yeah. a certain level, when you win certain races, whatnot, or, or UCI races, so there's a one kind of standard pay that everybody gets, right, per okay. month, right? But I also, I race for trade teams, right? So I rode for big U.S. teams where we had all our sponsorship, the bikes and the clothing and the shoes and the wheels. And so that comes with the team. So the goal is to make it on those bigger teams that have a bigger budget and mm-hmm. that can pay. But don't forget, I mean, women get an eighth of what the men were getting, even in our races, right? I mean, it was it was comical at the difference of the prize money, like the purse and stuff. I think there's only one race in Pennsylvania, Altoona, where the, the prize money was bigger for women than it was for the men. It was the only race. And that's why it was a big, big race called the Tour de Tuna in Altoona, <laughs> Pennsylvania. That was the only, but I mean, it's not even close to what the men were getting, you know. Um, Add another were, fight to the list. <laughs> exactly. And then also, like, you know, to, to, to be a, a professional athlete, I mean, you need a side job. You can't on the $10,000 a year, they're going to pay you. Right? You know what I mean? It's not enough, but I think people do it because of the passion and the love for the sport. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, yeah. Aside yeah. Them, Cause you're not gonna, you're not gonna, it's very, very rare that you'll make millions off the sport. No. And I, you know, and that's not even just the travel to get to competitions. I mean, right, yeah. you have, you have to pay, if you want good coaching, you have to pay them what they're worth. Exactly. And don't forget, yeah, and cycling is an expensive sport. You are you know, that bike now, you're getting bikes that are worth like $20,000, right? You know, yeah. wheels that are 5000 your shoes are 600 bucks, right? You know, so let alone with you, you have to be in excellent top shape. Your equipment have to be on par with what's out there because I know it's the person on the bike, but the machine does make a difference, right? You know, mm-hmm. when you have a, somebody on a 15-pound bike opposed to a 25-pound bike, you know. Sure. So it all adds up. That's why being on teams, they supply you with that stuff that's really expensive, you know? Yeah. And then and then at the end of the season, to make a little extra money, you can sell your equipment, like your bikes and whatnot, because the next year, you, you know, you'll get your new bikes and stuff. So that there's right. little ways you can make extra money. But again, it's not millions. It's not a not like you can buy a Porsche or something. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you can put a Porsche sticker on your bike. Yeah, you can buy, you can buy one of those toy Porsches. <laughs> but that's about it. yeah Yeah. so in 2005 were you still um pro cycling in 2005 um or were you this was when you were hit by a car no no 2005 is when i when we were descending at kind of 90 kilometers an hour i ended up crashing and falling on Uh my face Okay. That was after, like after I kind of made my declaration that I kind of reached the, the peak of my cycling career. Yeah. And it was that race where I was going to decide I had two big contracts. We're so going to stay in North America, go to Europe, whatever. I want to test my legs on a more international field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was that race. It was, it was a Cascade Classic in Bend, Oregon. And that was the mother of all crashes. You know? okay. 
yeah, that's where I, I mean, I shouldn't be here today with the magnitude of what happened to me at that race. It's a miracle that I actually survived it. But how long did it take you to recover physically and mentally from that crash? Like, what was your game plan to come back in? Honestly, how are you not terrified to get back on a bike? Well, I mean, it was a process because when you're crashing at 90K an hour, I mean, I it was basically like taking a pretzel and just stepping on it. I was in pieces, right? You know, my, my lips, I had to have reconstructed surgery to get half my face back on, you know, um, and... Uh, yeah, it was, I was bed bound for like almost two weeks. Right. So it was a process and the diagnosis wasn't good. They said it was questionable about my ability to walk properly without a walker or a cane, but it was unquestionable that I'd never race again. And that was the diagnosis I got in 2005. Right. Mm-hmm. But to me, I mean, I, I've never quit anything in my life. Right. You know, and I worked too damn hard to get to where I was at. And who are, you know, you to say that I'll never come back, right? You know, well, I just made a, basically made a promise to myself that I said, I don't care how long it takes, the pain I go through, I'm going to get back on the bike, I'm going to race again, I'm going to come back even stronger than I did before all this craziness happened. And that's what I did. And the only thing I could do when I was lying in that bed, yeah, craziness, (laughs) was ab contractions. That was the only thing I could do. But every day I did something today that I couldn't do the day before And, you know, those baby steps are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? You know, and Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, it was just that I was that determined. And and I think just being in that positive mode, as crazy as this may sound, I could feel my body starting to bind. And I worked really hard. Like you said, it wasn't so much the physical. I could physically get back because I was Mm -hmm. back on the bike, not like two years or three years later. I was back the following season. But this, the the um, the challenge was was the flashbacks of that of that happening. I mean, even descending in my car, like you know, when I was able to drive again, I would break. You know what I mean? Because I felt that uncomfortable. So that same coach that I hired for ascending for climbing, he was now coaching me for descending. You know, okay. because you know it, it does. It's you know when you're in a peloton, it's like a domino effect. When one rider goes down, many riders go down. Right? You know, so it was hard for me to be in the group and I kind of fought it for a bit. Um, So that's why I think I only raced, I think three more years after that crash, I kind of did the races that I wanted to do. I won those races that I wanted to win and I didn't continue anymore after that just because I couldn't afford to crash anymore. And when I made my transition into ultra endurance racing, that's when I got hit by a car. Oh, jeez. Yeah. (laughs) My very, (laughs) on my very last race as a, as a, um, as a pro racer, um, a lady was texting at a, you know, I was a race in Redlands, California, and I was coming back to the team car and I was at an intersection and she was barreling down like at 80 kilometers an hour in their enclosed area. And she didn't see me because she had her head down and she ended up hitting me from the rear of the bike, which ejected me about 20 feet across to the other side. Oh my and God. I put my arms out not to fall on my head and I snapped both my arms. And Jeez. that's, yeah, that was, I think three months before my, um, qualifying race for race across America. Uh, <laughs> Is that a good start? <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> but did the, did those injuries though influence you at all in the races that you selected? Like you only want, you know, you would choose courses that maybe had fewer downhills um, or, or did it get to a point where you were able to be like, I'm just going to do the races that I want to do. And I'm not going to worry about the actual terrain of the course so much. Well, that's a, that's a good question because a lot of the crashes happen like in criterium races where it's like a circuit race or the flat races. Um, the races that I wanted to do were very hilly and that's where the Peloton, the group of riders, they separate. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're right. I was very selective with the races that I did. And I also kind of rode very aggressively by attacking. So I wasn't in the pack. Right. You right. know, so that's for sure. And, and the reason why I knew ultra endurance racing would be better for me was because it's an individual sport. You know, you can't be around anybody. You're not allowed to draft. Right. You know, so right. like, like I said, that's why I think I only, cause it, it still kind of bothered me in the back of my head, you know, prior mm-hmm. to these big pro races is that, you know, I can crash again and I really can't afford to crash again. Right. right. You know, um, got only so many brain cells. Left, right? <laughs> because even you, <laughs> even you are not yeah, immortal. Well, well, yeah, I might mean, think too, and there's a bit of a fear there because you have to be realistic that there is life after cycling. Right. You know, right. 
But I mean, it was always on my radar that I wanted to do ultra endurance racing because although I, I struggled in pro racing, there was three qualities I had that I knew I wouldn't struggle as much when I transitioned. And that was the three things are my ability to completely ignore pain or tolerate it. Two, I can push myself beyond my limits. And the most important thing is, is I can function with zero sleep. And you need those qualities in order to really excel in something, something like race across America or anything that's over 48 hours where you have to stay awake for two days and still ride a bike really hard. So do you, you modify your training now? Like every year, do you, do you, you know, you've said, you know, there's, there's life after racing. Um, and you know, you've got that thought in the back of your mind, like I, I can't get injured again. So how have you modified your, your training or probably not your goals? I think you probably still want to win everything, but yeah. knowing that <laughs> who doesn't want to win? You're not far off. I think everybody wants to win. <laughs> yeah. but, but how have you adapted your training with the acceptance that, you know, um, I am 52 now. Um, I, I, you know, maybe even you don't recover is fast. Even if you are gifted, like, did you watch that movie 14 Peaks on Netflix? I, I have chance? Okay. No. So this mountain climber, phenomenal, but he has this genetic modification where he just has a higher VO2 max. He can just, okay. he can climb the mountains and do better because he just can store more oxygen at higher altitudes than other people. Right. Right. It's really fa quite fascinating actually. Um, so if, if you're able to do endurance, but if you look back at maybe when you were 45, it's not, you know, it's not maybe as your times are going to be as fast. So how have you adapted your training and your expectations as you've gotten older to still succeed the way that you want to, but with the knowledge that, you know, it's not going to be the same as it was five, 10, 15 years ago. Well, the interesting thing is, is that after um, Race Cross America in 2011, right? I think I was 43. I hung up the bike. Like I said, I was done as a, as a, as a pro rider, pro racer. You know what I mean? I just living out of a bag, you know, racing for 12 years on the road and transitioning to ultra endurance racing for those two years. So I actually retired when I was 43 and then I, you know, wrote a book. I started speaking. <clears throat> I'm just doing marathons, duathlons. I always stayed active. But the one sport that, the one race that I just didn't feel content with the finish was race across America. So when I turned 50, this is interesting. When I turned 50, I said, you know what? I'm going to come back and I'm going to ride that ride again. I think I'm going to ride it faster. I just had a feeling that it was in me. And so people were kind of skeptical saying, you know, you're 50 years old, right? You know? Yeah, you haven't done the sport, you, you know, you, you haven't done that much in the seven years, which I, I haven't, I always stayed fit, but you know, I wasn't mm -hmm. racing by any means at that level. So when I came back to racing at 50, which was two years ago, I went to a qualifying race just for confidence to see, you know, ah, do I still got this? So I went into that race and I won Silver State, which is an 800 kilometer race. Sarah Cooper had the record. I beat her record, came in first, right? And then this year at 52 years old, I was the first woman in 39 years to win the overall, right? You know, in Race Cross America. So the funny thing is, is that as an ultra rider, I think women can push the envelope a little bit more. And even okay. in my training, I'm slowly, I'm still improving, which is kind of weird, right? Even at my age, you know, and mm -hmm. I think too, it's because of lifestyle, right? You know, because I do have future goals. I want to go back to race across America 10 days is a goal. And I still feel like I can do it. And also one of the longest race in the world in Moscow called Trans-Siberian, which I didn't get accepted for, but I did now, you know, because I had to fight for when talking about fighting for things, right? Yeah. Only two women have been able to, they've, they've attempted to finish it. It's a 9,000 kilometer race. Oh I finally got accepted. So that's on the radar now here too, right? Oh, wow. So yeah. So those are the two big goals. I still feel like I'm improving, you know, my recovery is still good. I'm still, that was the one thing that I, um, I was very gifted in like in pro racing and ultra endurance. I can recover really fast, right? That's the one thing that I have. And my recovery is still pretty darn good. Even at this age, I can do multiple days and still keep almost the same power, right? You know, so 
and I don't feel like I'm where I've kindly reached the point where I can say, okay, I'm only going to do age kind of my age bracket or whatever. Right. So I haven't reached that point yet where I'm going to say, you know what, I'm slowing down because I haven't in the last, you know, three years coming back in to racing, my times have gotten better. And round 2019, I did it 10 hours faster than I did in 2011. It being 120 kilometers longer as well. So, I mean, there's a lot you can still do at 50, right? You know, so I'm, like I said, I'm not at that point where I can say, okay, I'm only doing this now for a hobby or so for fun. I right. still feel like I can compete it with the best in the world. So the Trans-Siberian one, are you going to go to the opposite extreme of like getting a sunburn through your jersey to getting frostbite <laughs> through your jersey? <laughs> hey, I live in Canada, so that shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> I mean, I saw videos of the race, right? And it's more the rain. So I can just go to my parents' house in Vancouver for the winter. And just oh, there you go. The freezing rain and whatnot, right? You know, so I mean. I was going to say, as someone who also lives in Canada, I can tell you that I was not happy with myself from coming back from Barcelona to, what is this? Minus, come on, from plus 16 to minus 20? What? <laughs> right, right, right. I know. No. I know you can question why the heck I'm here, right? I mean, it's not minus 20. I mean, we have a cold kind of snap happening this week. But, you know, I, I was at minus 20, minus 25. I still go out for my runs or whatnot. You know, I hate it. But you learn to, I mean, I never have to race in that. You know what I mean? But I, mean, I can ride in harsh conditions, right? Because in 2011, I mean, it was the worst rain the race I ever had. I was riding in storms and hail so hard. And so big that it was bruising the side of my face, right? It was that bad. So, you know, like I said, when you do race across America, you're going to hit everything, everything you can imagine. Um, but that's the thing. It's that's where that mental strength comes in, right? It's, it's learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable <laughs> as long as you can. Did you have a certain part of that race that you enjoyed did, or did you kind of... Because it's, it's so diverse across, you know, all the states, of course, but... Did you kind of hit like the desert in some parts and then get a reprieve in like the Midwest where it was maybe more, more humid and nicer and then, or was it pretty much just hard the whole time? You know, that's the thing though. Like normally in most race across Americas, the desert is really hot. California, Arizona, you're going to have mm -hmm. these heat of kind of, normally it's in the mid forties. At nighttime, the temperature drops, not this year. At 7 p.m., when I kind of started the race, it was 32, kind of on Oceanside, California. That's where the race starts. Five hours in, you hit kind of the glass elevator to descend into the desert. It was 7 p.m., and it was 47 Celsius this year. So normally at that time, temperatures start to go down, right? It was only going up, and it rarely went down from 47 throughout the night. The mm -hmm. next day, that's where it shot up to 50-plus. Right. You know, so there wasn't much reprieve in that temperature. Like I said, this year's Ram was a really a race of survival. It was those temperatures. It was insane. And mind you, 10 days before the race, I went to Borrego Springs to kind of climatize to that, to those temperatures. Right. But the yeah. week before, they had a cooling trend, and the highest they got was like 37. <laughs> I go, damn, it's that one, that home where I live, it's 37, <laughs> right? So the day of the, the race, it goes from 37 to 47, right? Oh. You know, so, like, but that, that's how it is. I mean, like I said, that's how it can mentally, that can really beat you up, right? But like I said, race across America, anything can happen, and you have to absolutely be prepared for everything. Is that part of what makes it exciting for you? Just there's so much you, you are in control of X amount of your training, but then you get in there and you have no idea what's going to hit you. Oh, absolutely. You have no idea what's going to hit you. Even in your training I mean, your body can shut down or whatnot. I mean, I don't know if you heard a, 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 a mile 1.6 K from the finish. My body did shut down. You know, I'm coming in, I'm going to be the first woman to win race across America and I can't move a mile before the finish because my heart rate shot up. I think my electrolytes went bananas because I think it was just the, everything kind of added up. And I finished Race Across America by walking my bike for about, I don't know, half a kilometer. I was wearing some pink oversized running shoes my crew member gave me because you're allowed to walk with the bike. Nobody okay. can touch me. And if you look at the real finish of Race Across America, I'm on my bike kind of lopsided with pink running shoes and two crew members running beside me. So uh -huh, I'm yeah, yeah. 
You know what I mean? And that's a kilometer or a kilometer before a 5,000, you know, kilometer race, right? That everything goes to hell. So you never know. Like I said, with Race Across America, it's a beast every year. You never know what's going to happen. That is crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. That is amazing. It's amazing. It's it's amazing. We were talking before we started recording. I was like, Fencing's hard. You have 18 minutes of pools and you have to wait in between. And I'm like, I'm dying. <laughs> so. oh, it's a different hard. It's a different hard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, you know, it is, it is, you know, the you have to be on all the time in cycling. You are you're hyper hyper aware all the time, right? Um is there any point like when you're like how do you how do you shut your, your, your brain off to recover it? Even if, are there periods of time when you're on the bike where you kind of can go into autopilot or is it just hyper awareness all the time, except for that, maybe like three to four hours that you get to sleep? You know, your brain is a potato. <laughs> like, because especially the last, like, you know, how the first 40, 42, 43 hours of the race, I'm not sleeping at all. And then I go down for my first break. I'm taking about three hours. And every 24 hours, it's three hours. But this year, because there was a potential of me winning the race, we cut my sleep to 90 minutes. So you're, you don't know kind of where you're at. You're hallucinating. You know, things are moving. You know, the, the children's sign, whatever, kids crossing. They actually are crossing, whatever, you know. <laughs> oh, at one point, I didn't know what the hell I was doing or where am I? You know what I'm saying? And so you're radio to your crew. So they know when you're kind of loopy to kind of keep you kind of, you know, yeah. to keep you on track, right? So it's really, it's hard to explain, you know, what, what's going through your mind. Cause you, you aren't aware of things. All you know is you have to ride as hard as you can. Right. You know? Um, yeah. And you just want to get to that damn finish time. Cause that last, that last 500 kilometers of the race, it's just pure torture. Your body is, you are just done. You are exhausted. You are mentally tired. You are physically tired. You hate everything. You hate the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just want to get to the damn finish line. <laughs> You know, so it is, it, it's, it's a challenge for sure. <laughs> and then what? So you get to the finish line and then, and then what do you just, did you just shut down? You're just like, I'm just going to um, go into the no, van. No, I shut like... down before. The problem was I shut down before <laughs> the finish line. It took me an hour to go one mile, right? That was the yeah. issue. Um, the thing is that's the, at the parade finish, kind of where all the spectators were. So I finished kind of, you know, finished Race Across America. I won. It did sink in like what I had just done. When I went into the parade finish, you're kind of escorted to where, you know, the podium is. Mm-hmm. I saw like hundreds of people there and I go, damn, there must be a concert or something happening. I've never <laughs> seen that many people. And then they start cheering and I go, who are they cheering for, right? I was like, coming, I didn't know it was for me. It was insane. I think if you look at my face, it was in complete shock. I had no idea, right? You know, it was unbelievable. Um, and just people falling right across the country with signs because they knew that this was, you know, I was about to make history as being the first woman to win this race. But it didn't, honestly, it didn't sink in until I think like two months later, what I had actually just done. <laughs> and how long after that did it take you to forget the pain and torture and think, I'm going to sign up for the next one? Oh, damn. When I crossed the finish line, I, I got to do this again. <laughs> Even my crew members are all going, oh, shit, you want to do it again? Right? I go, yeah, we have to do it again. It's 11 days, right? You know, <laughs> that's as soon as I cross the line, I'm doing this again. As much as I, you know, you're in so much pain and whatnot, because you're, you're just kind of reflecting, okay, what did we do wrong? How can I improve this? How can we better prepare for this? And all these kind of stuff goes through, through your head again. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, when I don't do something, like I said, I did something huge, but to me, 11 days is not satisfying. It's not satisfying enough for me, right? I don't care if it was 500 degrees outside. I've got a 10-day goal, and i got to try and do it again and at least come close to 10 days, at least come close. So that's the goal. You want that's to do the, the Race Across America in 10 days. That's the goal, exactly. And so are you training for that now? Is that that race yeah. is this summer or – or are you looking at next summer? Well, I'm looking at, well, next summer to probably be um, uh, trans, uh, Trans-Siberian. Not Well, this summer coming up, I'm just going to do shorter races, like the sister race of Race Across America, which is raw. It's 1,500 kilometers. And some shorter races just to get some speed back. Because I just finished a, a three-year, 
you know, period of RAM training, which is hard mm-hmm. on the body, right? So I just wanted to kind of tone it down a bit, let my body fully recover, just, you know, to keep these shorter races, just to keep me sharp and come in next year a little bit fresher, a little bit stronger, a little bit smarter uh, right. and either do Moscow or Race Across America. It's one of the two. And then the following year, do the one that I didn't do. But those are the two goals. I want to be the first woman to finish Trans-Siberian in that time slot that they have of 9,000 kilometers in 28 days and then race across America in 10 days. So how do you prepare for 9,000 kilometers? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I know I can do 4,800. I'm just going to wing the rest. (laughs) You know, know, I think, like I said, it it, it becomes mental. Who the hell can train for 9,000 kilometers? I don't know. That is the question I'm asking you. (laughs) I think it's just a matter of being on the bike for many, 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 many hours. (laughs) He's on the bike. Um, And having a strong body too. Like, you know, not just like, like, like weight training, having a strong back, having a strong neck, having strong arms and whatnot, you know, because you're using every element in your body when it comes to that magnitude of training and, you know, and that physical exertion. Right. So I think being positive, staying healthy and, you know, see what happens because that, you know, how do you train for something like that? You, you really can't, right. You're just hoping that you're coming to the, to the best shape of your life, you know, mm-hmm. on, on both spectrums, physical and mental. And then you see what happens because in 9,000 kilometer, anything can happen. Yeah. And ha- hopefully have a, have a good team that are able to, yes. to come with you for. Well, I'm very fortunate to have great crew members that have been with me the whole way. So they know my training, they know my diet, they know my, how my psyche works and, and I trust them. So they're, they're, they're my team. They're everything. Like, again, when I, you know, when I say one race across America, it's not I, it's we, without my team and my crew, you know, you're, you're nothing, right. It's because of them that I was able to do what I did. Do you still do kickboxing? I actually train every day. Like I'm, that's my warm up. I have, um, it's called, you know, Bob, it's that like mannequin punching bag, whatever that mm-hmm. I do. I, to me, it's important to keep that skill, you know, for self-defense too. You never know all these crazies out there. Right. You know, but I think too, the, the flexibility, the strength, um, I think kickboxing is a great sport, not this, not so much the sparring just because of the, you know, the contact, but right, the, sport itself, right. the training, it's really, it's a, it's a full body, everything. It's everything. So it's important. So- so a master's competition in kickboxing is or isn't in the future if the 9,000 kilometer Trans-Siberian race doesn't work out. No, I can't afford another knock to the head, <laughs> even from a baby. <laughs> no, that, that ship has sailed, no. <laughs> like I said, there's a life to everything. We can't be stupid, right? Now, now that yes. would be stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh... I did, I did boxing a few times and I got in training. I got hit in the face once. It wasn't even that hard. I was like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, I'm I mean, done. yeah. I mean, it's not like, you know, I, I fought in the ring and I was undefeated. It wasn't, that's not the injury part. It was the training, you know, when you're training in there, I fought against boys. Like, you know, those are my training partners. A lot of times, you know, 15 to 20 pounds heavier than me. So you think of that impact, right? You are going to get hit. And yeah. it takes its toll. It takes its toll, excuse me, you know. And like I said, you have to be smart about the things that you do. Yeah. And some things, they do have a life to it. And boxing, kickboxing, any full contact sport definitely does. Yeah. Um, your life, honestly, Leah, plays like a movie. It's it's uh, uh, amazing. And it's hard yeah. to believe that you've done this because you do so many things that, like, so many of us just could not do. Um what do you say to women who've been away from sport for a long time or are tired of the fight against sexism or racism to stay in sport, whether it's for the love of competition or just for their own personal achievement? Well, I mean, I think you're doing it for you. Like, it's not for anybody else, What whatever you're doing, you know. Um, and for competition, like, you know, I came back at 50 years old and look what I did. I was still kind of skeptical. Hey, what can I do? But in all honesty, who are you doing it for? It's for you. And if you don't do it, you'll probably regret it if you don't. Right. So like I said, it, it doesn't matter what other people thinks. It matters what you think and what makes you feel good and what drives you because, you know, life is short. This is a one-time deal. It's, it's now or never, you know, you're going to, you're not sit there and wait for things to happen before your eyes. And before you know it, you know, you're sitting at your deathbed saying the words I wish or what if you don't want to get to that point. 
do all the things you want to do now, right? Because life is too short and, and it doesn't matter whether you succeed or not. The point is you are going to do it and you don't want to have regrets later on in life. Leah, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, Thanks for having me. It's incredible to me that you agreed to come on and we got to to talk. You're, you're, you're such a an inspiration. And um, I'm looking forward. Do you have a documentary yes. coming out or it's? Yes. yes, it's in the process. We're hoping another probably month and a half. So we're hoping at the end of March, maybe beginning of April, it should be coming out. Is it, do you know where it's going to be? Is it uh, Netflix or HBO or theaters? Probably, probably Netflix, but we're, I'm not sure now. That's up to the, the producers and the, you know, the people that are running it, where they're going to, where they're going to move it. So, so please go for Netflix if you have any influence, because I do not have an HBO subscription. Okay. <laughs> okay that's for sure. <laughs> I I'm only listen. I've got a I've got a fencing career in quotes that I have to pay for. I can only handle so many subscriptions. Okay. <laughs> I'll make sure I'll just get the, the HBO. Awesome. Um, again, thank you so much. This has been such a blast, and I really appreciate you sharing your your knowledge and your story with us. Thank you, and thank you for teaching me some about something about fencing. I had no idea. <laughs> I learned something new. <laughs> Come out, listen. There is a club near you, uh, Dynamo. It's in Richmond. Come out. It's yeah. relatively safe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. You can supplement your kickboxing. Yeah. With other martial arts. Yeah, you never know. At I'm a distance. Hard. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. If you need something else to do in the winter, it's mostly an indoor sport. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, cool. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. To learn more about Leah and order her book, go to leahgoldstein.com forward slash book. To learn more about her documentary, No Limits, the story of Leah Goldstein, go to nolimitsdoc.com. For show notes, including the links above, go to silvergoldwoman.com forward slash episode hyphen 15. Follow this podcast on Facebook and Twitter at silvergoldwomen. For more episodes, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate, review, and share it too. Music for this podcast was crafted by the extremely talented Outwild. He knows what I like. Every time I hear these beats, I dance in my seat. If you like his music, you can listen to him on SoundCloud at It's Outwild. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at It's Outwild. Until next time, play hard, play smart. <laughs>